You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Then companies A and F were relieved from picket duty by companies B and D. The work of these men on the picket line and the relief of the parties was quite interesting and exciting to the observers in the rear and looked like a very pretty game. But to the participants, it was not pretty. Our picket reserve station was in the Emmitsburg Road in front of the regiment. The road was sunken there nearly two feet, affording some protection at the fence. The picket line was at a fence about 200 yards in advance of the reserve, and the line of rebel pickets about the same distance further on, some of it by the trees in the Bliss Orchard. Our men lay flat upon the ground by the fence, hidden and somewhat protected by the posts and lowest rails. Nothing was visible usually to fire at, yet when any movement was apparent, a shot or two would follow from vigilant watchers. Then the rising rifle smoke would attract retaliating shots. When the reliefs went to their places, there was excitement. The relieving squad would leave the reserve rendezvous, moving in any way possible to avoid the observation of the enemy. But when a place was reached where exposure was unavoidable, each would take off a running at highest speed, and upon reaching the fence, would throw himself at once upon the ground. The start of the pickets from either side, to or from their places, was a signal for a lively popping all along the line of their opponents, as long as a man was in sight. Not many of the runners were struck, for to hit such a rapidly moving object is a difficult feat, but the pop, pop, crack, crack would go on all the same, and the eagerness to hit would make some shooters careless, so making themselves targets for some hidden watchers. Private Henry Stevens, 14th Connecticut Infantry, 3rd Division, 2nd Corps, Army of the Potomac. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 370th episode of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. 
That quote we just shared at the top of the episode was from a member of the 14th Connecticut, and that regiment was involved in a sort of mini-battle for the Bliss Farm Buildings, which lay a stone's throw west of the Emmitsburg Road between the opposing lines. Since the morning of July 2nd, the log and frame house, stone and brick barn, and 10-acre orchard of William Bliss had been contested ground between the opposing lines, changing hands several times, and, as Tracy said, becoming the scene of quite a little battle within the larger battle. The struggle for the Bliss Farm intensified on July 3rd, until finally the commander of the 2nd Corps Division, holding that part of the Federal line, Brigadier General Alexander Hayes, had had enough and ordered the house and barn set on fire. That happened that Friday prior to Pickett's charge, so the soldiers of both sides watched from Seminary Ridge and Cemetery Ridge as two huge pillars of flame rose into the sky and the smoke from the burning Bliss barn and house hung in the summer air. For the sake of keeping the main storyline moving along, we aren't going to go into the details of the fight for the Bliss Farm here, but we did want to at least mention it and let you guys know that if you are interested in exploring this mini-battle for yourself, then you can check out Fury on the Bliss Farm at Gettysburg by John M. Archer. So, there you go. A bonus book recommendation for you. As some of you know, we've been using recent members episodes to cover a few of these topics that we don't talk about in detail here with the main story arc. And just yesterday, we released members episode number 124, which is about George Pickett's life before the Battle of Gettysburg. Yep. Uh, In fact, that's just the first of several members episodes we'll use to look at Pickett's life before and after Gettysburg. We think it's good stuff, really interesting, and hope the folks in the Strawfoot Brigade enjoy those episodes. Okay, so with all of that said, let's get back to our regularly scheduled programming. The action on Culp's Hill, on the far right of the Federal's Fishhook line of defense, was still raging on the morning of July 3rd when the men of Pickett's division arrived at a point west of Seminary Ridge, behind the center of the Confederate position at Gettysburg. Did you know Pickett's division was the only one in Lee's army composed entirely of units from the same state? It's true. And on that Friday morning, the Virginians were in good spirits as they marched the three miles from their camps on Marsh Creek up to the front lines. Morale was high among the soldiers in the division. One of Pickett's men later recalled how, quote, the usual jest and hilarity were indulged in. No gloomy forebodings hovered over our ranks, end quote. Captain John Dooley of the 1st Virginia remembered that some of the men amused themselves with pelting each other with small green apples, quote, so frivolous men can be, even in the hour of their death. Pickett's men were eager to enter the fray and get a shot at glory. Held in reserve at Fredericksburg and detached from the army for other duty during the Chancellorsville campaign, they hadn't been engaged in serious combat since Sharpsburg 10 months earlier. 
During the current campaign, they had brought up the rear of the army as it moved north into Pennsylvania, tasked with guarding the army's wagon trains, and thus missed out on the first two days of the battle here at Gettysburg. Pickett's division was actually composed of five brigades, but two had been kept behind to man the defenses of Richmond, while the other three, composed entirely of Virginia regiments, as Rich mentioned a moment ago, accompanied the army north into Pennsylvania. Now, halting on the west side of Seminary Ridge, the troops lounged in the tall grass and filled their canteens from the waters of Willoughby Run as their commander, 38-year-old George Edward Pickett, rode on ahead to consult with James Longstreet. Longstreet and Pickett enjoyed a close and long-standing friendship. Like so many of the officers, in both blue and gray, Longstreet and Pickett had fought alongside each other in Mexico. In fact, in September 1847, at the storming of Chapultepec just outside Mexico City, when James Longstreet had fallen, seriously wounded, it had been Pickett who had taken up their regiment's flag from Longstreet's hands and carried it forward over the fortress's walls. George Pickett was a West Pointer, graduating last in the class of 1846, the same class in which George McClellan graduated second and Thomas Jonathan Jackson eighth. After spending 15 years in the pre-war U.S. Army, Pickett resigned his captain's commission in 1861 to side with his home state and offer his services to the Confederacy. After a posting commanding the Confederate defenses along the lower Rappahannock River, in January 1862, he was promoted from colonel to brigadier general. Personally brave, the dashing Virginian fell wounded while leading his brigade at Gaines Mill during the Seven Days Battles in June of 1862. Upon his return to the Army that fall, Pickett was promoted to Major General and given divisional command, mostly because of the influence of his good friend, James Longstreet. Now, this summer morning in July 1863, the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg, with his men taking a break after marching up behind the front line, Pickett walked along the crest of Seminary Ridge and stared eastward across the open fields toward the enemy lines across the way as Longstreet explained his orders. As Longstreet later said, Pickett, in that moment, quote, seemed to appreciate the severity of the contest upon which he was about to enter, but was quite hopeful of success. Having received his orders from Longstreet, George Pickett then brought his three brigades forward through Spangler's Woods, just south of where the Virginia Monument stands today. James Kemper's brigade led the march, so he continued south past Henry Spangler's farm buildings and went into line of battle beyond Spangler's farm lane. Richard Garnett's brigade was next, so his men lined up north of Spangler's lane and in front of, or east of, the woodlot. Lewis Armistead's brigade was last in the divisional column. Armistead's men ended up forming into line 100 or 200 yards behind Garnett. 
So that meant Garnett and Kemper formed Pickett's first line, with Armistead behind. While it's unclear where precisely Garnett's left and Kemper's right ended, their two brigades probably covered a front of about 1,000 or perhaps 1,100 yards. How many infantrymen were in Pickett's division on the morning of July 3rd? Well, as with all attempts to determine such numbers, it involves a degree of mathematical guesswork, so the answer is uncertain. The figures on the three brigade monuments on the battlefield for Garnett, Kemper, and Armistead add up to 4,705 men present, which corresponds roughly to the figures most generally put forth by those in the division itself, from Pickett himself to staff officers to regimental officers. While modern estimates have ranged higher, it seems likely that when all factors are considered, the number of men in the three brigades who stepped off and marched forward and participated in the charge that afternoon was probably under 5,000 men. It's worth noting again that Pickett's division at full strength actually consisted of five brigades, but two of them had been detached to stay behind and man Richmond's defenses. What that meant in practical terms was that Pickett was deprived of about 3,700 additional men at Gettysburg. Knowing that even at reduced strength, the Virginians of Pickett's division did at least briefly pierce the federal defenses on Cemetery Ridge, it's natural to ask if the addition of over 3,500 men would have made any difference in the outcome of the attack. Well, like most historical what-ifs, we can only guess at what might have happened. But one thing we can say for certain is that the absence of those men that day certainly didn't help Pickett's effort at Gettysburg. Be that as it may, by late morning on July 3rd, the three brigades of Pickett's division were in position behind the Confederate gun line and awaited their fate. A corporal in the 7th Virginia called the heat, quote-unquote, excessively oppressive, and numerous accounts described the suffering caused by the high temperatures and sunstroke. The mood among the rank and file had turned grim, since now it was clear that deadly work lay ahead. Private Samuel Pollitt of the 18th Virginia and Garnett's Brigade was one of those who ventured forward to try to get an idea of what was in store for them. He later admitted that as he gazed across the open fields toward the enemy line over on Cemetery Ridge, quote, My heart almost failed me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. 
You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Pickett's troops from Longstreet's Corps made up less than half the force that would make the afternoon attack. The rest of the men would come from A.P. Hill's Corps. Correct. Because remember that Robert E. Lee, faced with Longstreet's objections to the use of McClaw's and Law's divisions, revised his plan once again. Lee agreed that Law and McClaw's could stay where they were, anchoring the right of the Confederate line opposite the Federal forces in the Round Top sector. Since Pickett's men would now be the only troops from Longstreet's corps taking part in the attack, Lee, for the extra manpower that was needed, would dip into A.P. Hill's corps. Although later on, participants from Pickett's division would emphasize Virginia's role in the Great Charge at the expense of other states, A.P. Hill's corps also contributed soldiers from North Carolina, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Alabama to the attacking force. That's exactly right. After Lee decided to dip into Hill's Corps for the extra manpower needed for the attack, he selected all four brigades of Heath's division and two brigades of Pender's division to join Pickett in the assault on the Federal Center. Although Henry Heath was still in the field, he had been wounded on July 1st. He had been clipped in the head by a bullet and was probably suffering a concussion, but in any case, he was certainly in no shape to lead men in combat, so command of his division had been passed to one of his brigade commanders, Johnston Pettigrew. With Pettigrew elevated to divisional command, his brigade was led on July 3rd by Colonel James Marshall of the 52nd North Carolina. Of the other three brigades in the division, Archer's brigade was now commanded by Colonel Burkett Fry of the 13th Alabama, since James Archer had been captured on July 1st and was now on his way to Baltimore as a prisoner. Then there was Joseph Davis's brigade and John Brockenbrough's brigade. Pettigrew's four brigades moved up and went into line north of where the Virginia Monument stands today on Seminary Ridge. In fact, if you visit the battlefield and stand at the North Carolina Memorial, you are standing right about the center of Pettigrew's line. The four brigades were positioned with Brockenbrough on the left, or to the north, then Davis to his right, next was Marshall, and then Fry on the right. Forming several hundred yards behind the right of Pettigrew's line were the two brigades from Pender's division slated to join the attack. But since Dorsey Pender had been struck down on July 2nd with what would prove to be a mortal wound, Robert E. Lee, on July 3rd, gave Isaac Trimble command of Pender's division. 
Prior to the summer of 1863, 61-year-old Major General Isaac Trimble had spent quite a bit of time recovering from a wound and then suffering from an illness. And before Lee's invasion of Pennsylvania, he had been placed on light duty, so to speak, commanding the Valley District in the Shenandoah Valley. When the Army of Northern Virginia headed north, though, Trimble didn't want to miss out on the action, so he attached himself to Yule's Corps as an advisor. However, Dick Yule mostly considered Trimble and his unsolicited advice a nuisance and had as little to do with him as possible. So Yule was no doubt relieved on July 3rd when he got word that Lee was tapping Trimble to lead the wounded Penders division. Trimble was courageous enough and would accompany these two brigades forward in the coming attack, but it all must have been more than a little awkward as he was an entirely unknown figure to Pender's men. In Trimble's line, James Lane's comparatively fresh brigade formed up on the left. Then, since Alfred Scale had been badly wounded in the leg on July 1st, here on the 3rd, his battered brigade was commanded by Colonel William Lowrance of the 34th North Carolina. Lowrance formed up on Lane's right. So, in summary, both of these divisions from A.P. Hill's Corps, forming the left of the attacking force, were led by replacements, as were three of the six brigades. Lee's selection of Heath's division and half of Pender's has puzzled most historians. Excepting the North Carolinians under Lane, all of these brigades were in rough shape, having suffered heavily during the fighting on the first day of the battle. Scale's brigade, in particular, had been savaged during the combat on July 1st with casualties approaching 60%. Its inclusion in the attacking force on July 3rd is simply incomprehensible. In addition, while Lane and Fry were experienced and highly capable commanders, Marshall and Lowrance were entirely inexperienced in brigade command, and Davis and Brockenbrough were mediocre, uninspiring officers at best. While Heath's division was well below par, two brigades from Anderson's division of A.P. Hill's Corps were nearby but remained unused on July 3rd. In fact, neither of those units, neither Posey's brigade nor Mahone's brigade, did much of anything at Gettysburg, and between them only suffered a little over 200 casualties the entire three days. It's also a mystery why only half of Pender's division was selected to participate in the attack while the two remaining brigades, under Perrin and Thomas, remained positioned nearby in Long Lane. Perrin's brigade had seen action on July 1st, but Thomas's brigade had escaped virtually unscathed. Perhaps there are so many question marks surrounding what was going on with the selection or non-selection of these units, because there are so many question marks about what was going on with A.P. Hill at the Battle of Gettysburg. Hill was obviously off his game at Gettysburg. It's presumed that he was feeling quite ill, which apparently significantly impacted his ability to exercise command during the battle. Certainly, on July 3rd, in every account you care to look through, 
Little Powell is virtually a non-entity in the planning for Pickett's charge. It's natural to ask, did Longstreet, as commander of the overall attack, exert proper care in placing the troops from Hill's Corps? Or was it expected that management of his own troops would be A.P. Hill's responsibility? Certainly, Robert E. Lee expected reasonable coordination among his subordinates, but there's no evidence that Longstreet and Hill openly communicated and cooperated with each other on July 3rd. Their past antagonism that had caused Hill to be transferred away from Longstreet following the Seven Days Battles was reportedly not a factor. And although we find that a bit hard to believe, perhaps it was true. And perhaps each officer just assumed the other was attending to these necessary details. Or maybe Hill felt that it was no longer proper for him to issue orders to brigades now assigned to an operation being run by Longstreet. At any rate, all that can be said for certain is that on July 3rd, there was no genuine cooperation between the two corps commanders or their staffs. And as for the reason for that, well, Longstreet wasn't admitting to anything afterwards, and Hill didn't survive the war to give his side of the story. We went off chasing the will-o'-wisp of any cooperation between Longstreet and A.P. Hill before we could ask the question as to how many men the 6th Brigades of Pettigrew's and Trimble's divisions brought to the attacking force on July 3rd. Unfortunately, the answer to that question is even more a matter of guesswork than it is with Pickett's three brigades. Folks, estimates of the strength in Pettigrew's and Trimble's six brigades are purely speculative. Not only did Confederate reporting procedures make it devilishly difficult to ascertain the exact number of men who went into action and the resulting casualties, but the challenges of assessing July 3rd strengths for these six brigades are further complicated by the fact that reports seldom broke down casualties by day, which is obviously a problem for historians studying the multi-day battle here at Gettysburg. So, for example, for units that fought on both July 1st and 3rd, we may know the total number of casualties suffered at Gettysburg with some certainty, but not how many occurred on the first day of the battle and how many occurred during Pickett's charge. In their excellent book, Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, Jim Hessler and Wayne Motts do their best analyzing the numbers and come up with a figure of 7,300 men available to Pettigrew and Trimble on July 3rd, plus or minus several hundred. But they also point out there's little doubt hundreds of men were lost prior to the charge due to artillery fire, heat, and other factors. So they make an arbitrary 10% deduction to arrive at around 6,600 men available to make the attack. Now, Hessler and Motts admit that other historians have arrived at, and will continue to arrive at, different estimates. 
But really, the truth is, precise figures for the number of men in these half-dozen brigades who stepped off on July 3rd at the start of Pickett's charge will simply never be known. As some of Pickett's Virginians did after their units had moved up into position, some of Pettigrew's men also ventured forward to take a look at what was in store for them. A sergeant named Junius Kimball in the 14th Tennessee of Fry's Brigade saw, quote, an open plain with a slight incline to the front of Cemetery Ridge with no obstructions, end quote. Sobered by the sight, he shivered and asked himself aloud, June Kimball, are you going to do your duty today? He summoned up the resolve to answer, I'll do it, so help me God. But when he returned to the lines of his regiment and was asked how things looked, he could only say, Boys, if we have to go, it will be hot for us. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Pickett's Charge at Gettysburg, A Guide to the Most Famous Attack in American History, by James Hessler and Wayne Motts, with cartography by Stephen Stanley. We think this is the best all-around study of Pickett's Charge. There, we said it. But it's just so well written, and the presentation is just so accessible and effective that it doesn't matter if you're only casually interested in the topic or are a hardcore Gettysburg nut. We can pretty much guarantee that you'll be drawn into the story of Pickett's Charge like never before. It's good stuff. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations, including both of the ones from this episode, if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As some of you already know, Robert E. Lee intended there to be two essential parts to his plan for the attack that came to be known as Pickett's Charge. There was the infantry assault, of course, But Lee also envisioned a devastating artillery barrage that would precede the infantry charge. And with the next episode, we'll talk about that part of Lee's plan, and also look at the federal defenders over on Cemetery Ridge, who would be on the receiving end of that bombardment and the ensuing infantry charge. But as we wrap up this show, we want to be sure to thank the newest members for their support. So thanks to Alex M., Andrew Z., Mary L., Christopher G., Jay Boland, and Jonathan C. And thanks to Greg L. and Rick T. for their donations. Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.